As a 33-year-old male, few television shows shaped my high school and college imagination more than the profound, inspiring, and brilliant work of art known as Pimp My Ride, (laughs) which I've been told Mary Pafford owns every season on DVD. Each episode, hosted by Exhibit himself, took one lucky person's old, ugly, beat-up car and revitalized it. Upgrades often included flashy paint jobs, eardrum-busting sound systems, and over-the-top interior features perfectly suited to the owner's unique personality. And like any reality TV show, it would end with a final reveal, when the owner would be amazed and grateful for their new and improved vehicle before they happily drove off into the sunset. But here's the problem. While the experts at Pimp My Ride sunk significant time, energy, and money into improving the car's appearance, they neglected underlying mechanical issues that affected the car's basic performance and functionality. I guess the executives at MTV determined that fixing a cracked head gasket, a slipping transmission, or a faulty electrical system just isn't quite as entertaining as a custom snow cone machine built into the back seat. So sure, the car looked totally different on the outside. But deep down, it was still the same old lemon. Now, as we come to the end of our time in Paul's letter to Titus, the focus has been on getting the churches in Crete into good health. In chapter 1, that meant appointing godly elders who could teach good doctrine and address false doctrine. In chapter 2, Paul argued that it's not just godly elders who make up a healthy church. Rather, we're all called to live godly lives. And those lives can show a watching world just how good, true, and beautiful the gospel really is. And today in chapter 3, Paul picks up that same theme of godly living within a healthy church. But this time he elaborates on how this godly living actually becomes possible. This morning we see that godly living is not just something you slap onto the outside of sinners while we remain internally unchanged. The kind of godly living that Paul expects the kind of godly living that makes for a healthy church only comes from people who have been deeply and miraculously transformed by God's grace. So open up to Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together to worship you. And even though we say thank you every Sunday, just about at some point in a service, whether it's in a prayer or in a song or a sermon or a meditation, we really do thank you. And every once in a while, we need reminders of just how much we have to thank you for. And hopefully this coming week can be one of those reminders. In the midst of the travel and the hustle and the bustle of the 
holiday season starting, I pray that you'd remind us just how much we have to be thankful for. That even if we lost everything in this worldly plane, we would still have so much to be grateful for. Because you are our Father, you are our Lord, we are your children and your servants. Our sins have been forgiven, you've given us your spirit. Again, we have so much to be grateful for. And I pray that you would help us recognize that today and in the week ahead and every day that you give us life. And thank you for your word that we get to read this morning. I pray that you would use your word to change us how we need to be changed, whether it's encouraged or challenged or convicted or woken up from a kind of sleepwalk. I pray that you would use your word to shape us and form us in your image. And thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that week in and week out, we can come here and we can see that cross. We can drink juice and eat bread, which in and of itself doesn't sound all that remarkable, but serves to remind us of what is truly remarkable. And that is the cross. And that is our forgiveness. Thank you, Lord, for who you are and what you did for us on that cross. And again, be with us this morning. Help our worship be honoring to you and good for us as your people. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, starting in Titus chapter 3, verse 1, Paul writes, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. So let's start by examining the godly characteristics Paul expects from Christians on the island of Crete. First, they're to be obedient to governing authorities in verse 1. And notice that Paul does not provide any carve-outs when it comes to good authorities or bad authorities. Paul hits at the same idea in Romans 13. The Apostle Peter strikes a similar chord in 1 Peter 2. In short, Christians are called to be the best citizens around. Now, are there times to disobey governing authorities? 
Of course there are. We saw that multiple times when we were just in the book of Daniel. We see the apostles disobey rulers in the book of Acts. But with all that said, our default position, unless governing authorities force us to directly disobey our Lord or will not allow us to obey our Lord, our default position is one of submission, obedience, and respect. Next, the Christians are to be gracious to other people more broadly. Verse 2. Read some of those phrases again. Speak evil of no one. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. That's a high bar, isn't it? That's easier said than done, especially when you're in the Castleton Mall parking lot on Black Friday. Now, this doesn't mean that believers are called to be passive pushovers or deferential doormats all the time. But we are called to be genuinely kind, patient, and understanding to those around us. Third, Christians are to be dedicated to good works. We see this in verses 2 and 8. One phrase that may be somewhat overused these days, but still has a great deal of legitimacy to it, is the common good. The common good. Believers in Jesus, like us, can and should contribute as much as possible to making life better for everyone around us. Not doing it begrudgingly, but eagerly. Being ready for it. Prepared for it. Devoted to good works. And Christians are to be united within the church. Verses 9 through 11. In Crete, those foolish, unprofitable, and worthless controversies, quarrels, and debates that Paul mentions were likely started by the false teachers back in chapter 1. But as we all know, we Christians today can easily fall into the same sort of distractions and divisions over trivial matters. Verse 11 especially shows us just how serious Paul is about church unity. It's so important that if a person consistently proves themselves to be working against the church's unity after multiple warnings, they are to be cast out of the church. Unless you think this is just the Apostle Paul being overly strict, Jesus says something similar in Matthew 18. The famous passage about dealing with conflict between brothers and sisters in Christ. In his famous high priestly prayer of John chapter 17, Jesus devotes significant attention to unity within the body of Christ. It really matters. So here's the point of the sermon so far. Be a good person. Obey governing authorities. Love your neighbors. Do what's right and just. And stick together. Be a good person. Have a great Sunday. But is it really that simple? Just telling us to be good people? Not exactly. Paul reminds us of the sad reality in verse 3 when he talks about 
our past. Being good people doesn't come naturally to us. And why is that? It's because we're sinners. And turning sinners like us into good people isn't as quick and as easy as putting a new coat of paint on a beat-up car. We have problems under the hood that need to be addressed first. But the way that Paul begins verse 3, that phrase, we were once, we were once, that implies that something can change. In fact, Paul argues that for Christians, something has changed. Look again at verses 4 through 7. We're going to read them again because they're just so dense. So much there to think about. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So what changed? What makes Paul think that sinners like us can actually be the good people he challenges us to be in this chapter? Well, it starts with those three words. He saved us. He saved us. God gets all of the attention in these theologically rich few verses. He saved us, not our good works. He saved us according to his own mercy. He saved us by the work of the Holy Spirit. He saved us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, that does not mean that we are totally passive parties in our salvation. Other parts of Scripture make it clear that we must repent, we must believe, we must respond. That all has a place. But here, Paul focuses on God. Because at the end of the day, every single one of us, when we really sit down, think it through, and trace our fingers back to the source of our salvation, we always end up at God's grace before anything and everything else. Not our humility, not our wisdom, not our worthiness. He saved us by his grace. So these verses really stress that our salvation is a result of God's work, not ours. You see all three persons of the Trinity present in this passage. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all play an essential role in saving sinners. Our salvation starts with the Father's mercy. It's accomplished through the person and work of the Son, Jesus Christ. Namely, his sacrificial death on the cross and his victorious resurrection. And it's applied by the Holy Spirit's power. It's because of what God has done. 
Not what we have done. That we are heirs of the hope of eternal life. So how can we not love, worship, and obey him now? How can we not be the good people that God calls us to be? But if we dig down even further, these verses stress the inner transformation that must take place. If we Christians have any hope of being the good people, Paul challenges us to be in this chapter. We need more than just a bit of exterior cleaning. We need more than just smoothing out some rough edges. We need more than mere behavior modification. For as when a house is in a ruinous state, no one places props under it to move it somewhere else, nor makes any addition to the old building. Rather, he pulls it down to its foundations and rebuilds it anew. So in our case, God has not repaired us but has made us anew. To be the people God calls us to be, we need God to change us from the inside out. A Christian is a sinner who has been miraculously transformed by God's grace, so much so that we are no longer the same person we once were. That's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians five sixteen and 17, that we are new creations. The old has gone, the new has come. That's why Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 3, speaking to Nicodemus, that if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again, not just a better person. That's why Paul can say in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, that we have died to sin. We have been buried in Christ's death and baptism, and raised to newness of life. That doesn't sound like somebody who's just learned a few new skills or grown up a little bit. We are new people in Christ. And it's this inward transformation accomplished by God that leads to outward transformation of our actions. So make no mistake, our lives should look different now than they did before we believed. Our lives should look different than the lives of non-believers around us. As Paul said, we were once, but now we are. Christians can and should be good people. But not because it's polite, not because it's endearing, not because it's socially advantageous to us, but because God has transformed us by his grace. If you turn to the prophet Ezekiel, we learn that this is not some new thing that God cooked up in the New Testament. This is something that God has been at work towards for a long time. The prophet Ezekiel, long before the Apostle Paul, wrote in chapter 36, starting in verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, 
and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The Old Testament Israelites were not very good at being good people. That's the story of the Old Testament in general. That's the story of people like us in general. We needed something different to live up to what God called us to be, to live up to what God created us to be before sin marred us. It would take a work of God. It would take a change of heart. It would take the presence of the Spirit. And by the time we get to the New Testament, by the time Jesus has lived and died and risen, all who believe in him are given that spirit so that we might walk by God's statutes and rules, be the holy people that he made us to be. The result of inward transformation by God's grace The regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, as Paul puts it in Titus 3, is outward goodness for God's glory. That means that the pimp my ride approach to godly living won't work in the long run. If our Christian life is mere outward change, driven solely by our blood, sweat, tears, and strength of will, we may look good for a while. But eventually, we will end up broken down on the side of the road. Last week, we discussed the analogy that the Protestant reformers liked to make when they spoke of justification and sanctification. Justification is when we place our faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and God declares us to be righteous right then and right there. That's the root of our salvation. Sanctification, the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. Not just being declared righteous, but actually starting to look righteous. That's the fruit of our salvation. And in Titus 3, 4 through 7, Paul focuses on the root. Those surrounding verses. Be a good citizen. Be a good neighbor. Be a good person. Be a good church member. Characteristics like obedience and humility and kindness and hu- unity. Those are the fruit The root must be firmly planted for long-lasting and healthy fruit to be produced. We must be internally transformed to be externally godly. More mature, more honest, more generous versions of our old selves. By God's grace, we are new people. New creations. C.S. Lewis once put it this way. Mere improvement is not redemption. Though redemption always improves people here and now, and will, in the end, improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. God became man to turn creatures into sons. 
Not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. We are not just better versions of our old selves. We are new people. Now, this means that genuine life transformation is possible. It's even to be expected for believers in Christ. Now, will we ever be fully perfect this side of heaven? No, we won't be. Will this transformation always come in a very straight and predictable and steady line? Nope. Will external change happen overnight? Not usually. But we can and we should expect tangible growth and holiness. We have the Holy Spirit, don't we? And if fruit is consistently absent a long time after we've believed, it's worth examining the root. So if you ever find yourself looking in the mirror, frustrated with how you're still falling short, disappointed with how far you still have to go in your spiritual maturity, take heart. God can, God is, God will help you grow. So don't throw in the towel. Don't get discouraged. And don't let Satan cause you to doubt your standing in Christ. That root is there. But if you look in the mirror, you recognize that you're falling short. And to be honest, doesn't really bother you very much. It hasn't bothered you very much. I pray that you might take the time to examine that root. Remember who you are in Christ if you've forgotten it. And if you're not sure that you ever were in Christ to begin with, talk to an elder, a pastor, your small group leader, or a trusted believer. God can and God does change people from the inside out. Just ask Paul. The enemy of Christ turned apostle of Christ. Ask the Cretans. The moral scum of the earth when this letter was written, who Paul seems to think can actually live godly lives by God's power. If God can transform them, God can transform you. Godly living, being good people, is not just a possibility for believers in Jesus. It's the expectation. You may have heard me say it before that Paul's theory of godly living is summed up in the simple phrase, be who you are. Be who you are. If you are a believer in Christ, you are adopted by God the Father, you're justified by God the Son, and you're indwelt by God the Spirit. So act like it. Be who you are. Be a good person. Not just because it's the right thing to do. Not by your own power. And certainly not so that you can be saved. But because you are 
saved. We were once lemons. But God has done something better than just slap a nice coat of paint on the outside or fixed a few dings or scratches to make us look a little nicer. He saved us. So as Paul stresses one final time in verse 14, let us learn to be fruitful for God's glory, for our good and the good of those around us, and for the church's health by the Spirit's power. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge of this passage. And this is far from the only passage like this in the New Testament. There are so many passages that tell us what you expect of us as your servants and as your children. To be righteous, to be holy, to be pure, to be obedient, to be loving and selfless and humble and wise. We have all these commands. But Lord, I pray that you would remind us that you give us these commands not to beat us down, not because you expect us to fulfill these things by our blood, sweat, and tears, but rather because you've given us your spirit. And it's because we have your spirit. It's because we've been justified by the body and blood of Christ that we can actually do these things. So, Lord, I pray that we would be good people, that we would be righteous, that we would be holy, because that's what you made us to be, ultimately fall short of our purpose, fall short of what we were born to do and who we were born to be as your children and your servants. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us fulfill all these commands to be righteous and be holy and be wise and all the other adjectives spread throughout the entire Bible. But remind us day in and day out that we do not do it by our strength. We do it by yours. Help us lean into your power Help us abide in you, as Jesus says in John 15, in order that we might bear fruit. Help us be good people, not just so that we can get pats on the back, not just so that our church can look good, but so that other people might see our good works and ultimately come to glorify you. We were once rebels. We were once orphans. We were once enemies. But you saved us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us live like it. We love you. We worship you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We ask this all in his name. Amen.